This is the Food and Justice Podcast with Brenda Sanders. On this inaugural episode, I'll be speaking with Malik Yakini, co-founder and executive director of the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network, about the revolutionary nature of farming, what true food justice looks like, his inspiring work to bring food security to people in Detroit, and much, much more. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and thank you so much for tuning in to Food and Justice with Brenda Sanders. I am so, so pleased today to to have this wonderful special guest with me all the way from Detroit, Michigan. And I want to welcome uh, Malik Yakini to the show, and I want to read just a little bit um, about all the amazing work that Malik has been doing um, in Detroit for years, and then we will get into all these questions and really dig into the important, important work that Malik has been doing. Malik Kenyatta Yakini is an activist and educator who is committed to freedom and justice for African people in particular and humanity in general. Yakini is a co-founder and the executive director of the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network, which operates a seven-acre farm in Detroit and spearheaded efforts to establish the Detroit Food Policy Council, which he chaired from December 2009 to May 2012. He served as a member of the Michigan Food Policy Council from 2008 to 2010. From 2011 to 2013, he served on the steering committee of Uprooting Racism, Planting Justice. He is a co-founder of the National Black Food and Justice Alliance. Malik is dedicated to working to identify and alleviate the impact of racism and white privilege on the food system. He He has an intense interest in contributing to the development of an international food sovereignty movement that embraces Black farmers in the Americas, the Caribbean, and Africa. He views the Good Food Revolution as part of the larger movement for freedom, justice, and equality. Malik has presented at numerous local community meetings and national conferences on creating a racially just food system and implementing community food justice community food sovereignty practices. In 2017 and 2018, he co-led the course Food Literacy for All at the University of Michigan. He is featured in the book, Blacks Living Green and the movies Urban Roots and Tomorrow. He has appeared on the nationally televised Tavis Smiley Show and Anthony Bourdain, Parse Unknown. He served as an Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy Food and Community Fellow from 2011 to 2013 and a Business Alliance for Living Local Economies Localist Fellow from 2014 to 2015. He is the recipient of numerous awards, including the prestigious James Beard Leadership Award. He holds a BA degree in broadcasting from Eastern Michigan University. And as if that wasn't enough, (laughs) Malik is a musician who plays guitar, bass, and doo drums. And he currently leads the Detroit-based band Mollywop. He is the grand he is the father of three and the grandfather of one. He is a vegan and an avid organic grower. Oh my goodness, oh my goodness. I am just so honored, pleased, over the over the moon to have you, Malik, on the show. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with me today. Thank you. The honor is mine. Oh, oh, I appreciate that. I mean, this. This bio, this wasn't even it. Like, (laughs) I have seen more stuff out there, but, you know, I had to cut it down because, I mean, like, all the things that you're doing might have, like, just taken up the whole show. So, um, you know, you just are out and have been out in the community for a while, and you have been doing so much important work. And I just am in awe. I mean, it's... it's, um, I have had this dream of doing the kind of work that you have already been doing and are having success at doing. And that is such an inspiration to me. And and that's why I was so determined to find you and, you know, and and get in contact with you because I was like, if anybody should be on a show called Food and Justice, it should be you. So again, thank you so much. Thank you for the invitation. I appreciate it. 
Yes, I, I want to jump right into these questions because you are quite a fascinating person, although you would probably just say that you're just a normal person. <laughs> I would I would uh, probably beg to differ. Uh, you've been involved in activism since junior high school. Were you exposed to revolutionary minded people at a young age? Like, where did that come from? Let me start by first giving praise to the creator and to our ancestors. Um, and I continue to stand on their shoulders and be inspired and strive to be a worthy representative of our ancestors. Um, I've had very good teachers and I had very good teachers starting as a young man. Uh, I'm 65 years old and I'm saying that so you can kind of place me within a particular era. So I came of age really in the 1960s. So in 1967, Detroit had the bloodiest of the urban rebellions in the United States. I was 11 at the time. 1969, I was in the eighth grade, and I had some teachers who I want to name, actually, Ronald McCombs and Melvin Peters, who played Malcolm X's message to the grassroots in our class. Wow. And it was a, you know, they had records back then, so it was a 33 and a third LP. And hearing Malcolm's clarity and his unapologetic blackness and his boldness as a 13 year old trying to figure out what it meant to be moving from boyhood to manhood really had a tremendous influence on shaping me so yes i had uh, very good teachers as a as a youngster and I, I grew up in an era where the era instructed me you know when i was in the eighth grade the school i was at we were having walkouts and protests and so it wasn't just an intellectual thing it was like you had to make a choice. Are you going to walk out or you go sit in the classroom? You were caught up in it. And so that's the era that shaped me. So both I had individual teachers and also I was taught by the era that I came of age in. Wow. And that, I mean, obviously makes perfect sense and explains a lot about, you know, the work that you um, have come to be doing. So how long have you been doing specifically food activism? And what sort of led you into beginning to do that particular work? So I'll go back to that same eighth grade classroom and Malcolm X. One of the things Malcolm X said in that message to the grassroots was he talked about what he called the field slaves and the house slaves. Mm -hmm. And he talked about how the house slaves ate the kind of food that was closer to the food the master ate. And, but the majority of black folks were field slaves and they ate the cast off parts. And so he named some of those. He said they ate the hoof of the hog and the tail and the snout and he ate the guts. And he said, that's what you all were then, gut eaters. And he said, some of you are still gut eaters. So the relationship to the work I'm doing now is prior to hearing Malcolm X say that, my very favorite food in the whole world was chitlins. Wow. Guts. So it kind of shook my, you know, my 13 year old brain and started me thinking about food for the first time within a historical and a cultural context. I had never thought about it that way. I just thought, you know, this is what my mother makes at home and I, I like the way this tastes. I don't like the way this tastes. You know, she made liver and onions. I hated that. Uh-huh. And, and, you know, other stuff she made, you know, I, I liked old kernel. So that's all I thought about, you know, did I like it or did not like it? And right. was, you know, could I get some more? <laughs> but hearing Malcolm really shifted that so I started thinking about food on a, on a, again, within a historical and cultural context. And so that, that started me changing my diet. I first gave up pork early on. And then by 1975, I stopped eating meat altogether. And then by 1981, 82, somewhere around then, I became what I later learned was called a vegan. I didn't even uh-huh. know what was called that then. So I was on this personal journey in terms of my personal diet. I wasn't involved in a food movement. But I knew that food was important in terms of us having the energy to be involved in the Black liberation movement in a robust way. Mm-hmm. Then fast forward uh, to 1999 or so, I was principal of a, an African-centered school. And I don't know if the, if the bio mentioned that at all. I don't recall. But for 22 years, I was principal of an African-centered school in Detroit called oh, wow. the Sotoma Institute. That's a whole nother story for a whole nother day. But the relationship to this conversation is in about 1999, we developed a food security curriculum in the school. We developed a food, uh, uh, a garden, and all of the classes in the school were required to work in the garden at least once a week. All classes in the school, all teachers in the school 
had to have at least one lesson per week that had a food tie-in, whether it was looking at the cultural and historical aspects of food, the economic aspects, the nutritional aspects. We were making thinking about food part of the curriculum and part of the school culture within Ensortima Institute. I still didn't know that there were people all around the country and all around the world in something called the food movement. Uh-huh. And then in 2005, uh, a friend of mine and my Jegna, or some people like to work to use the term mentor, I don't particularly like that term, but the person who introduced me to the concept of food security was an old friend from who lived in Toronto. And I want to name him. His name is Anand Lololi. And he okay. headed and heads an organization called the African Food Basket, African-Canadian Food Basket. And what they do is primarily organize among the African-Caribbean community living in Toronto. And they started out providing baskets that you know people could pay for each week. And then they progressed to farming. And so I actually was walking on stage. And let me back up and say the way I knew him was in the late 1970s and early 1980s. I was playing in a reggae band called Onyx. They used to play in Toronto frequently. And the first show we did in Toronto, he was playing in a band called Truths and Rights, which was the number one reggae band in Canada at the time. And they came out to our show to check out these dudes from Detroit claiming to play reggae, right? So I guess they, you know, they wanted to <laughs> see what we were bringing. And then we ended up developing a friendship and doing many shows together. Our bands would do shows together um, in Toronto and in Detroit. But I kind of lost track of them. And so I was getting ready to walk on stage at a festival in Detroit, and he was standing near the stage, and he called me, and we connected, and then we started talking, and he started telling me he was gardening, and I was gardening, and he was telling me about foods. So that pulled me into this larger movement. And so he invited me in 2005 to present with him, to co-present at a conference in Atlanta of a group called the Community Food Security Coalition. And at that meeting, I met Will Allen, who uh, for many years ran Growing Power in Milwaukee, and for many of us is like the guru of urban agriculture, and met many other people involved in this movement. And that was my real introduction to the food movement. And so, um, but I also saw at that meeting that what I witnessed happening in Detroit was happening throughout much of the country. And that is that much of the work that was being called food security work or food justice work was being done in black and brown communities, but it was being led by white led nonprofit organizations. Uh Now being a person who comes out of the black nationalist and pan-Africanist movement, and when I say comes out of it, I mean, that's my background. I don't mean I've left it because I'm still in it. Mm. But uh, being a person who was informed by that background, white people leading anything in black communities rubs me the, the wrong way. And so once I saw this was this kind of national trend, I made up my mind that we needed an organization in Detroit to organize black people specifically to address food sovereignty, food justice, and food security. And so I began jotting down ideas for the organization that later became the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network. And that organization had its first meeting in February of 2006. Wow. Food and Justice is made possible with support from Defund Big Meat, a grassroots effort to encourage strategic collaboration across all sectors of global justice. Find more information about Defund Big Meat at www.defundbigmeat.org and A Well-Fed World, an international hunger relief and food justice organization advancing plant-based foods and farming to create a nourished and climate-friendly future. Find out more about A Well-Fed World at www.awfw.org. Thank you. Okay. And so what what exactly would you say if you were going to um, boil down the purpose of the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network? Like, what would you say? Uh, so I'm not reading from the mission statement. I'm kind of ad-libbing and interpreting the mission statement. Okay. But I would say the main thing is to raise the consciousness of Black people in Detroit about first of all, what the food system is. Because the average person doesn't think about a food system. 
the average person thinks about, I need some food in my refrigerator. I'm going to the grocery store and buy some food and come home and cook it. Or I'm going to a fast food restaurant and get some food. They're not thinking about a whole system. They're thinking about what it means to be the end user of that. Uh And so, um, so the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network first wants to help uh, encourage black people to think about all of the elements that go into food ending up on our plate, you know, from the seed to the quality of the soil, the seed being planted, the workers who are planting the food, the in many cases, the chemicals that are sprayed on the food, the impact of growing food on the environment, the the retail the distribution of that food, the aggregation of it, the selling of it in retail stores, who makes profit from that. We want folks to think about all of that, not just mm-hmm. think about, you know, I like the way this burger tastes. Um, yeah. And most importantly, we want to then begin to create and control the mechanisms that bring that food into our community. And so we've started with farming. As I mentioned, we run D-Town Farm, Detroit's largest farm, mm-hmm. and we grow a tremendous amount of food there. Still not enough to make a significant dent in food security in the city of Detroit, but it's more a symbol and example of what can be done. Yes, we can grow food. This is not something that's foreign to us as a people. In fact, the reason that we're here in the Western Hemisphere for the most part is because we were enslaved laborers growing food and other agricultural products in the southern part of this country, in the Caribbean, and in Central and South America. And so we were enslaved largely because of our expertise in agriculture. So this is not something that's foreign to us. You know, in the last few generations, many of us has moved away from that as we've become more urbanized. But, you know, we're not too far away. I mean, my grandfather came to Detroit from Georgia in the 1920s. And, you know, in Georgia in the 1920s, agriculture was just a part of life. Whether you worked on a farm directly or not, you had a backyard garden or, you know, a truck garden, as they call them sometimes. Uh, It was just part of what people did. And then when he came to Detroit, he brought that with him. So my first exposure to gardening was in my grandfather's backyard. So, you know, just uh, so we want to encourage black people to think about the food system and how we are not just uh, um, subjects that are acted upon by it, but how we are agents of creating our own destiny and really using uh, food as a way of building that power and building that ability to control our community. So I would say in a nutshell, that's that's what we're about. That's incredible. That is absolutely incredible. It's so um it's so important and, and means a lot to me that you're talking about uh how you got your first start with gardening in your grandfather's uh backyard because you know I I too had an opportunity to learn gardening from my grandmother who, you know, was just in a a Baltimore city row house, you know, square uh, uh, plot in the back. And she grew an amazing number of things, everything from, of course, the collars and, and, you know, the, the cabbage and, and, and even corn and watermelons. Like she grew green beans, everything back there. And, you know, she wanted to pass that on, you know, to, um, to those of us who were coming up and we just didn't see the value in it, you know, and it just was kind of like, Oh, I don't want to do that, you know? Um, And so it wasn't until much later that I was reintroduced to farming and and finally saw the magic of what she was doing out there. Um, One of of the things that is a difficulty as we organize black people to do this work is for many of us, the only association we have with uh, of agriculture, the only what thing we have to associate agriculture with was either our enslavement or sharecropping, uh-huh. both of which were systems that exploited black labor to create white wealth. And yes. so many of us want to get as far away from that as possible. That coupled with another problem, which is kind of a global problem, and that is throughout the world, there's this idea that living in the city is better than living in a rural area because uh-huh. if you're in the city, you're more sophisticated and you're more cultured and this and that and this and that and this and that, right? So everybody wants yes. to be, you know, wants to be hip and cool. And, you know, like when I was growing up, the worst thing you could call somebody was country. Country, yes. Nobody, nobody want to be country. Everybody wants to be slick and, you know. Mm-hmm. So 
So, so that's a phenomenon throughout the world. And, you know, so you have people all around the world li- leaving rural areas, coming into cities, sometimes starving to death, mm. you know, where they could be growing food in the rural areas, but because of the lure of the cities. And, you know, part of it is in- international capitalism because it tends to accumulate capital in these cities, in these urban areas. You know, that's where manufacturing occurs and a lot of the selling and buying occurs. And so people are gravitating gravitate towards those places where the money is because you know in rural life it can be it can be very hard and you know farming is not easy farmers not are not paid a fair wage so many people are trying to leave that behind so black folks are faced with both of those things the thing that people globally are faced with in terms of the law of urbanism and then we're faced with the stigma which many of us still carry about farming because it's in our minds associated with enslavement and sharecropping mm. That is just such a uh, an illuminating insight. Thank you so much for sharing that with the audience. So you mentioned that the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network founded D-Town Farm. So what was your initial goal in, um, in starting D-Town Farm? So we had a few goals. Uh, one goal was to provide a site where we could learn and we could train other people to grow food. You know, you have to have some skills at this. And and it's both an art and a science. There's some knowledge that you have to have. Then also from doing it over and over and over again, you begin to develop certain intuition and a relationship with the plants and a relationship with the land and being able to kind of feel the weather. And so you can't really, you know, learn that in a book. You learn that from experience. So we want to create a site where we could learn these things ourselves increase our skills as farmers, but also train others in the city as, as farmers. The second reason is that we wanted to actually do whatever we could do to, uh, to impact food insecurity in the city of Detroit. And one of the things that we could do is grow food. You know, we don't have to beg somebody else to come into our community and create a grocery store. You know, we'll beg somebody to come in and set up food distribution sites in our community. You know, we're from the we're the cut from the do for self kind of claw. And so one of the things that Detroit has that many other cities don't have is a tremendous amount of vacant land. In fact, Detroit is, um, I think, 139 square miles and about one third of the land in the city right now is vacant land. And so we have the opportunity to do agriculture on a scale that is unimaginable in most cities. so we wanted to, number one, again, train people. Number two, provide access to fresh, healthy produce. And number three, we wanted to model how unused or underutilized land in the city of Detroit can be put to productive use. And I mean, you've been doing this now for since when? Uh, the organization started in 2006 and we've been uh, farming collectively since 2006. We're at our third location, the first location, 2006. We farmed there, and at the end of the season, the season, a developer bought it, and we Uh. had to move. 2007, we were on some land owned by a church. Um, They didn't like everything we were doing and decided that we couldn't be there in 2007. And one of the main objections was when we started calling it D-Town Farm, and the person who was in charge of the piece of land said, oh, that sounds like some old hip-hop name. Oh, no. And so we wanted to kind of dictate how certain things were going to go. And so we had to leave there in 2007. And fortunately, we had been negotiating with the city of Detroit since 2006 for two acres of city-owned land to do a model organic farm. So Mm. that request finally came to fruition in June of 2018. I'm sorry, June of 2008, excuse me. And we've been at that location ever since in a city of Detroit park called Rouge Park. So we have what's called a license agreement with the city to use the land. We started out with two acres and we added five additional acres in 2010, giving us a total of seven acres, again, making us the largest farm in the city of Detroit. Wow. That's incredible and so inspirational. And I hope that um, other cities are also as um, accommodating and willing to work with community activists on the ground well, let, me, make... let, me, let me give you the, so a, little, a little insight. Sorry for interrupting you. Oh, sure. One of the reasons we were able to make that happen is because even before myself and others who started our organization got into farming, 
we were already community activists. Uh-huh. So we already had relationships with a lot of people and we were trusted by a lot of people because we didn't just parachute out of the sky into the community. We've been here. Uh-huh. I mentioned I ran an African-centered school for 22 years. And so people knew about this school and had great respect for it. And so that worked to our favor. But the other thing is this. There were two people on the Detroit City Council, Kwame Kenyatta and Joanne Watson. Kwame Kenyatta is my, was my comrade from all the way back to the 70s. Uh-huh. And I mean, we were close, 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 where I was like best man at two of his weddings. And he was on the city council. And then Joanne Watson, who we had organized with on many uh, community initiatives, was on the city council. So having those two comrades on the city council is what enabled us to push this thing through. It wasn't Uh, that the city government as a whole wanted to see D-Town Farm happen. Is that we had organized and put people in, when I say we, I mean our community collectively had organized and elected people to political office who were down with our movement. And so we were able to utilize those relationships to get access to the land of Rouge Park. Wow, and those are very important points. Um, I know here in Baltimore, politics is a tricky, tricky business. And, and um, it, it really is about who you know and, and how long you've known people, you know. Yeah. So, um, so you, you mentioned, um, <laughs> it's so funny how like the whole conversation is just flowing, you know, one question into the next in a way that's so organic. It's never happened before, actually. Um, but you mentioned um, white activists. I was, uh, I think I was reading an interview and, or maybe watching one of the videos of one of your talks. And you mentioned white activists and nonprofits coming into black communities like missionaries to start food justice initiatives. Can you talk about what the problems are with that and the impact that that has on the community? Sure. The first problem is that the system of white supremacy suggests to white people that they know what is best, not only for themselves, but they know what's best for everybody else. And neither one of those assumptions are true. Mm. The system of white supremacy suggest to white people that they have the obligation to save others. And that's where this missionary idea comes in, that somehow they know more, they have greater insight, they're better educated, they're better funded, and so they're better in a position to come through and save the Negro. So we reject all of that kind of nonsense and say that Black people are responsible for saving ourselves unapologetically. You know, we don't make no kind of bones about that. Our knees don't shake when we make these kind of statements. You know, we're not scared that grant funding is going to be cut off because we we say these things, you know, openly and we, you know, we want people to hear. In fact, sometimes we meet with new funders, you know, we sit down and we kind of lay this out that this is where we're coming from. And if that, you know, is a good fit for the type of funding that you do, you know, we want the funding for sure, but we're not going to do some kind of funny dance and change our worldview or change our values in order to get money. And so, so we're very straight up about this, that black people are responsible for saving ourselves. Now, we're not on some anti-white people thing. We're anti the system of white supremacy. But if there are individual white people who are also against the system of white supremacy and can follow the leadership of black people, then we invite them to be allies. So we have white people to come and volunteer at our farm. We have two or three white people who are members of our organization, but they understand clearly this is a Black-led situation. Mm-hmm. And if they are able to develop the humility in order to follow Black leadership, then we, we welcome that. So, you know, I just want to, I want to be clear about that, that, you know, I think, you know, white people have a role to play. Although I think the biggest role white people have to play is organizing among other white people, because that's really where the major problem lies. The system mm-hmm. of white supremacy lies in the heads and actions of white people. And so white people who want to be helpful, the most important work they can do is, uh, in fact, I heard some sisters in Baltimore say this, get your cousins. Okay? <laughs> so that's, that's the most important work, you know, the people that you are in relationship with and that you live around and that you are your family members, you know, to work to, to help them evolve past these dangerous ideas associated with the system of white supremacy. But, you know, again, also, you know, we we welcome white volunteers if they want to come and volunteer at our farm. As long as they understand black folks run this, you're not running it. And, you know, you can come in and you can follow the leadership of black people if you can humble yourself enough to do that. Mm -hmm. And if you do that, you're welcome. 
So I just want to be clear, we make a distinction between our vehement opposition to the system of white supremacy and our, you know, kind of embracing of humanity in general, even people who consider themselves to be white, if they can be on the track towards behaving as human beings. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting, um, the, the way that you're talking about um, these folks who are coming in from outside the community, because back uh, in about 2012, 2013 is when all this money got dumped into uh, low-income Baltimore communities for community gardens. There must have been some kind of focus group or something that said, you know, you know what black people's problem is? It's food. Uh, they don't have enough access to food. And then whoever came up with that idea then proceeded to give a whole bunch of white people money, you know, foundation money and grant money to come into uh, these communities and start these gardens. And um, and so I've talked to both people in those communities as well as the white uh, saviors that sort of came in to start these initiatives. And I mean, they didn't even do the basic, like going and talking to the people in the community and just even finding out, do you want a garden? If you do want a garden, do you, you know, what would you like us to grow? Would you like to come in and grow? You know, like none of it. They just decided before even coming in what they were going to do for us. And then they initiated it and they found that there was like no receptivity from the people in the community. And so they started to complain, oh, these people don't want fresh produce. They don't want, you know, this access to food. And th that was never the issue. The issue is that they had never been consulted in the first place. And this was something, you know, they, when I was little, there were white folks coming in to solve our problems, you know? And that's just been happening for decades. And, uh, you know, so, so I definitely have seen exactly what you're talking about in Baltimore. And it's really encouraging to see people, you know, like Eric Jackson doing the work down in Cherry Hill, this Black-led initiative um, called Black Yield. Um, and, uh, you know, and other uh, urban farms, um, community farms that are popping up that are led by the people in the actual community. So I feel like the, the winds are, are changing in that regard. So by the that way, is big, up, big ups to uh, Reverend Heber Brown too. I oh yes. In the, the black Absolutely. food security network. And he, and he told me that they were inspired by the work we're doing in the Detroit black community food security network, which is why the name is so similar. Wow. So That's amazing. So it's a circle of black inspiration, let's say that, because we're very inspired by the work that they're doing as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. I would love to, um, you know, like there are so many people who I who are just right close to home that I have connected with on the ground, but have yet to get on the show. And so, you know, you bringing up folks that I am just as excited to, to bring on and tell um, their stories and, and talk about their work. So one of the projects of the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network is the Detroit People's Food Co-op. I was just over the moon. I couldn't believe it. I thought, wow, I mean, this is just the most exciting thing I had ever heard. And, and so I would love for you to just talk about, you know, that project and also like what is like, appealing and important to you in particular about the cooperative model? Okay, I'll start by saying that our organization is an anti-capitalist organization, that we think that the economic system of capital, capitalism is a terrible idea and reality, both for human beings and also for the planet. And that we need to be about the business of dismantling capitalism. Mm. But we're also realists and we understand that capitalism is not going to be dismantled tomorrow or five years from now. And that in the meantime, while we're trying to undermine and dismantle it, that we have to figure out how we survive. Mm -hmm. And so within the context of a capitalist system, cooperatives are the method that black people have traditionally used to gain some type of power and control over our communities in the face of an economic system, which is hell bent on keeping us out of the mainstream economy. And so also cooperatives are more in line with our traditional culture. You know, I've had a chance to do a deep dig into African history and culture 
And uh, almost wherever you go on the African continent, you have what you can call either communal or collective or cooperative practices. Mm -hmm. This idea that individuals only have importance within the context of the group. Uh, I am because we are. And so, you know, it, it would have been impossible in an African village, for example, for one person to starve. Mm. You know, I mean, you, you know, because food wasn't just prepared for individuals. It was seen as a collective venture. When hunters went out, they weren't just hunting for, you know, their fam they were hunting for the entire village or compound or whatever the case may be. And so uh, cooperatives, collectives um, are really you know, a new names to describe the cultural practices that African people have had since the beginning of, of recorded history. And so that's the other reason, you know, we're convinced that as we move towards liberation, that we have to do it through our own eyes, that we have to mm. throw, throw off the shackles of the, 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 we have to decolonize our minds. That's the term that's being used now. Yeah. You know, we have to get rid of the, the way of looking at ourselves and looking at the world that has been imposed on us by the very people who enslaved our ancestors and colonized these lands and begin to look at what concepts we can extract from traditional African and other indigenous cultures, which are more humane, which are more earth loving, and which will help sustain both humanity and the other beings on this earth. And so all of those things point to cooperation as opposed to the kind of rapid individualism that we see in American society. And so that's our interest in cooperatives. So uh, because we're in the food realm, uh, we are interested in food cooperatives. You know, in the city of Detroit, there's something like 675,000 people currently. We'll get the results of the 2020 census very okay. soon, but most people predict it's about 675,000 people, 80% of whom or so are Black. But there's not one Black-owned grocery store in the city of Detroit. Uh, Detroit is, by percentage, the Blackest city in America. Not to say we have the most Black people, because there's more Black people in Brooklyn than Detroit, but in terms of the percentage of the total population, black, uh, Detroit has a higher Black percentage than any other place in the country. But still... In this blackity, blackity, black city, there's not one black-owned grocery store. This is unacceptable. And so we're interested in creating circular economies where we're not seen as just a market to dump cheap, often cheap goods into to make profit for exploiters, but we're interested in creating a circular economy where the money that we are spending is circulated within our community to create jobs, to create uh, collective wealth and to create a sense of empowerment. Right now, the people who own grocery stores in our community do what Malcolm X talked about in the early 1960s, uh, where he said, even when we try to spend the money in our own neighborhoods, uh, people come with the, uh, they leave, they leave the neighborhood at the end of the day with a basket full of money and take it to the part of town that they live in. And we see no real benefit from that. And so we think that cooperatives are the best option that we have to reverse these exploitive, ex extractive trends while we are still working to dismantle the systems of white supremacy and capitalism. Food and Justice is proud to be partnering with Afro-Vegan Society, Thrive Baltimore Community Resource Center, My Two Foods, and Better Food Foundation. So important. I mean, just so very important. And and one of the things that you were saying, you know, that they're coming in and they're dumping these cheap uh, products into the community. And yet the markup on those products is so high. It's so much higher than if somebody, you know, traveled outside their community to like, you know, a grocery store or, or a chain, you know. And, and so it's just purely exploitation and extraction, like that nothing is being fed back into the community. So what you just mentioned in Detroit, there's hundreds of millions of dollars of leakage every year where black folks who have automobiles leave the community mm. because although there are 60 or 70 grocery stores in Detroit, as I mentioned, none of them are black owned and many of them are very poor quality. And so many people who have automobiles leave Detroit, go into the suburbs to spend money 
and the money's still leaving our community. We still see no benefit from it. And so we have to find a way, you know, as part of our overall development plan to create circular economies, circular cooperative economies in black communities. And, you know, a lot of times people talk about buy black campaigns, buy from black businesses, and we support that. But the problem with that is just because someone is a, identifies as a black person who happens to own a business doesn't mean the black community as a whole is going to benefit. You have some people, black people who own businesses who could care less about the black community. They're concerned about themselves as individuals, not all, but there are some. And the point I'm making is having black skin is uh, not sufficient. That's one characteristic, but we need people who have a commitment to the black community who also have black skin in order to create these kind of circular economies. So just buying from individual black people is not enough either. We need to find ways that our communities rise collectively. You know, you, you've dealt with like food policy and and that's just something that I'm just starting to sort of be introduced to. And so I was wondering if you could tell me how big of a role do you think that policy will play in shifting the racial inequity in the food system versus like how big of a role will community based initiatives like the Detroit People's Food Co-op play in that shift? So I'll, I'll be very clear and say that I think what is most important is what we do for ourselves. What is most important is what we do for ourselves. And so that means building the institutions, the organizations, and the mechanisms to meet our own needs and to create the kind of reality that we want to come into being. But it is also important because we live in the context of a country that passes laws and those laws have real impact on people. And, you know, I tell people, if you don't think so, you know, ask uh, Mexican immigrants who have been swooped up by ICE or uh, Haitian immigrants. You know, if you don't think policy has some real impact, you know, it does. And, you know, policy can can cause people to, to suffer extreme hardships. And so while I don't think the answer to our liberation it, it lies in policy or passing new laws or anything like that, I think in the meantime, these are some things that we should do to relieve the suffering in our communities Mm. and also to create an environment where people who want to do for self, who want to create these initiatives are able to do it unhindered. Mm. Thank you. Thank you for that. So, um, you know, I was reading through uh, the website for uh, DBCFSN um, and I, a couple of things caught my eye. And one of those things uh, was talking about your core values uh, and amazing core values. If you haven't gone to the website, please go to the website, read through so much great information. Um, one of those core values is respect for life and nature. And I was just wondering, how does that value play out in your farming practices? Well, we use what some people call regenerative practices which we would say is even beyond sustainable practices. Mm. Sustainable simply means something you can do, you know, over a long period of time without doing damage to the earth, which is important. But we're also using regenerative practices. And what I mean by that is we're doing things like producing compost. So the industrial style of farming used to produce the vast majority of the food in the United States has a tremendously negative impact on topsoil. In fact, we're losing topsoil at a rate much faster than the earth can naturally reproduce it. Mm. And so by taking what other people consider to be garbage and producing uh, compost, we're actually building and regenerating the earth. We're building new soil and regenerating the earth. And so, you know, if we're to survive as a species, we have to look at not only how we stop doing damage to the earth, but how we put in place practices that restore and help heal the earth from the damage that has been done by the centuries of overproduction and the centuries of seeing the earth. And when, I, when I'm talking about on the part of capitalists, because the average person doesn't really do this, but the capitalists who are making billions and billions of dollars see the earth as a, as a commodity. And so because of that, they have done tremendous damage. The industries and the styles of development that they created have done tremendous damage to the earth. And so we want to restore the earth and help restore the nat- natural balance. So composting is one of the ways that we do that. Uh, mm-hmm. We also are concerned about water. In fact, water is one of the new battlefields, uh, or one of the battlefields of the 
current and the future. And we see that particularly in places like California, where people are talking about maybe piping water in from the you know mountains uh, north of California or from Alaska even. You know, I've heard some talk about that. Um, or where in New Mexico, farmers can only use water on certain days uh, because of the scarcity of it. But there's battles about water all throughout the world as well. And so we're conscious of that. And so we have a rainwater retention pond that can hold about 50,000 gallons of rainwater. And using a solar power pump, we pump it into storage tanks and we can use that to water some of our crops. So we're also modeling uh, sustainable water usage. And we're also concerned about sustainable energy. And so we have a solar energy station at the farm with 10 solar panels that generates about eight kilowatts of electricity and that's the only electricity we have at the farm. We're totally off the grid. And so those are some of the ways that we are using sustainable and regenerative practices at D-Town Farm. Wow. I just want the audience to know that they are learning all these things at the same time I'm learning all these things. I did not know. So I'm just like floored that that all this is going on um, out at the D-Town Farm. I mean, it is remarkable. It, it really is. One of the things we started doing this year, we have a farm stand in front of our farm every Friday and Saturday. And so we used to go buy, you know, clear plastic bags and people buy greens and we put them in the bags. And But this year we started buying biodegradable bags. Uh-huh. So they cost a bit more, but again, trying to be in line with our values. And so now we're using, you know, green, sustainable, biodegradable bags with the produce that we sell at Detail Farm. That's another, you know, example of how we're trying to use earth-friendly practices. And that, I mean, just setting so many, so many great examples. I I just so appreciate that. So, I mean, this is great work. Obviously, people, you know, are are now aware. A lot of folks may not have known because, again, I I was talking to you about how a lot of us just get so local that we don't even um, necessarily realize that the same kinds of work are happening all over the country, you know, all over uh, the world, even. Um, and so for folks who may be local um, and would like to um, just find your work and get involved or for folks who even aren't, but just want to know more about it and support it, um, where can they find information about what you have going on? So I, I want to give out two web addresses. The first is to the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network, which is the organization I lead that operates D-Town Farm operates our youth program, the Food Warriors Youth Development Program, and is leading the development of the Detroit People's Food Co-op. So you can contact us at www.dbcfsn.org. Again, that's www.dbcfsn.org. But I also want to point people to the National Black Food and Justice Alliance. Because if somebody is in Baltimore, I mean, they can learn from what we're doing in Detroit, but uh, also we want to give them a way to tie into folks that are near where they are and to tie into other folks nationally who are doing this work. And there's quite a bit of work happening on the eastern seaboard uh, between all the way from Georgia up to Baltimore. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we would encourage people to connect with the National Black Food and Justice Alliance by going to our website, which is www.black foodjustice.org. Again, that's www.blackfoodjustice.org. Wow. I mean, there there are things that I didn't even, you know, like have a, a chance to, to ask you about that, you, that I'm just learning about, like the youth program and I'm sure like lots of other things. Can you tell us anything about the youth program that you have going on? Sure. So first I want to hail up my sister, Mama Hanifa Ajuman who heads our youth program. She's the Education Outreach Director of the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network, and she's a co-founder of the organization. And she runs the youth program. We operate at two different locations. One is a school called the Barack Obama Leadership Academy. Mm. And that program is an after-school program that is only open to students who attend that school. It's an elementary school. And so we have about 18 raised beds behind the school and we maintain those raised bed gardens with children. And then she also goes into the classroom and supplements what teachers are doing in the classroom. The second location is at the church she's a member of, which is the Shrine of the Black Madonna. 
which is a fairly well-known uh, radical black church. It started right here in Detroit and also has a church in Atlanta and a church in Houston and a church in Liberia. And so at the church, that program is open to any young people in the community. They don't have to be a member of the church or they don't have to live in that neighborhood anywhere in the city they can come to the program. And that program meets on Saturday mornings. It's met virtually actually uh, for all of this year because of the pandemic and for last year as well. Uh, but we're expecting at some point to go back to face to face, but even virtually, you know, the children have these rewarding experiences where uh, we were able to demonstrate to them things uh, on online that they can that they can do where they learn more about not only gardening, but they're learning about nutrition, they're learning about food justice concepts, and they're learning about the role and the, the contributions of African and African American people to the development of agriculture. Mm. Wow. Well, I I mean the time flew. Uh, I it just has seemed like just a few minutes and and I've learned so much more about you and your work and and I'm sure the audience is impressed and as impressed and intrigued um, as I am. And so I wanted to thank you again so, so, so much, uh, Malik Yakini, for uh, just taking the time to be on this show and giving me an opportunity to spotlight the amazing things that are happening in Detroit. Thank you so much, Sister Brenda. And what we would encourage is we, we appreciate people being in, inspired by what we're doing in Detroit. But what's most important is that people become active wherever they are. And so for folks who might be in Baltimore watching this, we want to encourage folks to uh, to connect with uh, Brother Eric Jackson and the Cherry Hill uh, Food Co-op and also the gardening initiatives that they're leading. We want to encourage folks to connect with Brother Heber, Reverend Heber Brown and the Black uh, Black Church Food Security Network and any other Black folks uh, in the uh, in the DMV. Who, and there's many uh, who are doing uh, food security and food sovereignty work and to see how you can connect in a concrete way. Don't just be inspired by what we're doing, but find out who's doing the work where you are and tie into that work and make a contribution in a concrete way. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yes, and thank you to the audience for tuning in to Food and Justice with Brenda Sanders. And I look forward to inviting you in to explore these amazing people who are on the ground doing this important work next time. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Food and Justice. See you next time.